go ahead and get started. Are we starting early? As always, the last panel of our conference looks ahead to the uh, October term to come, October term 2010, starting in two and a half weeks, when we have not only new cases, but yet again a new justice. While we have yet to see as many blockbuster constitutional cases as last term hit the docket, we do have two big free speech challenges, one over a statute prohibiting the sale of violent video games to minors, another the protesting of a fallen soldier's funeral, an establishment clause lawsuit against Arizona's tax credit for private tuition funds, kind of an alternative to a voucher program, federal preemption uh, cases involving seatbelt uh, safety standards, and an Arizona law about employer sanctions for hiring illegal aliens, important ERISA and copyright cases, I'm sure that's what everyone has turned out for, uh, a case examining privacy concerns attending the government's background checks for contractors, and a criminal procedure dispute regarding access to DNA testing. With some interesting cases still seeking Supreme Court review, the end of uh, next week, I believe, or the week after next, uh, we'll, we'll have some more cases hitting the docket. It should be a good and varied year. Joining us to discuss this coming term are Eric Jaffe, the author of the review article, uh, looking ahead, as well as Tom Goldstein and Bob Barnes. Eric Jaffe is a solo appellate lawyer in Washington whose practice emphasizes the First Amendment and other constitutional issues. He's a graduate of Dartmouth College and Columbia Law School, clerk for Judge Douglas Ginsburg on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, and uh, Justice Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court. He uh, then hung out his uh, own shingle after uh, five years of practice at Williams and Connolly. Since 1999, Eric has been involved in 24 cases at the merit stage before the court. Is that right? Something like Something that, like that uh, including one of, uh, uh, for the successful respondents in the First Amendment case of Bartnicki v. Volper, uh, and as well as four amicus briefs for Cato. Among other accolades and affiliations, Eric is the chairman of the Federalist Society's Free Speech and Election Law Practice Group. Tom Goldstein is a partner at Aiken Gump, Strauss, Hauer, and Feld, where he heads the firm's Supreme Court practice, and I believe now is one of the co-chairs of the litigation practice overall. Is that right? I have the misfortune of heading the litigation practice. Oh, there you go. Uh, I guess managing partner next time I introduce you or something like that, right? <laughs> Uh, Tom has argued cases spanning a broad array of federal law, including 22 times before the Supreme Court. Is that number right? Okay, 22. Uh, in addition to practicing law, he teaches Supreme Court litigation at both Stanford and Harvard Law Schools. In 2003, he, of course, founded SCOTUS Blog, which makes my job so much easier, and which in 2010 became the only blog ever to receive the ABA's Silver Gavel Award for fostering the understanding of law and the legal system. The National Law Journal has named Tom one of the 40 most influential lawyers of the decade, and the Legal Times named him one of the 90 greatest Washington lawyers of the last 30 years. Tom is also included on the most recent list of the 100 most influential lawyers in America, again the NLJ, and the 50 most influential people in Washington, according to GQ. Was there a photo spread to go along with that? <laughs> no one knows politics and law like GQ magazine. <laughs> he graduated from the University of North Carolina and American University's Washington College of Law, after which he clerked for D.C. Circuit Judge Patricia Wald. Tom's family uh, annually vacations with Eric's, so it'll be interesting to see if they have any disagreements there, or if they put together some sort of song and dance for us. But our families leave us behind somehow. <laughs> 
batting third is Bob Barnes, who covers the Supreme Court for the Washington Post, where he has been a reporter and editor for more than 30 years. As a deputy national editor in charge of domestic policy, he supervised coverage of the Supreme Court, Justice Department, census, demographics, and race. As political editor during the first term of the Clinton administration, he coordinated coverage of national politics, the White House, and Congress. Bob also served as Metropolitan Editor, uh, directing the Post's local coverage of the District, Maryland, and Virginia. He gave up all thoughts of law school for a career in newspapers after taking a journalism class at the University of Florida. It didn't occur to him that he could do both. Uh, And indeed, Bob is the first Constitution Day panelist ever who doesn't have a JD. So, welcome to the panel. And Eric. Thank you, Ilya. Um, one tiny correction, while Tom's fortunes have gone up and Aiken Gump, mine have gone down in the Federal Society, I'm now the former chairman of the uh, Free Speech and Election Law Committee, having been ousted at the end of my term. Um, in any event... Will you be appealing that to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights? I will, and I believe I will be successful. Um, Tom and I don't agree on a lot of things, but we often agree on the First Amendment, at least in the non-campaign finance context. Uh, uh, the Bartnicki case that was mentioned earlier was actually Tom's case. I was there, there simply in an assisting capacity. Uh, but in any event, this year, there, this year there are at least three First Amendment cases and a couple more on deck, which may or may not get granted. Uh, the first one uh, I'd like to talk about is Snyder versus Phelps. This is the military funerals, protest at military funerals case, uh, set to be argued on Wednesday, October 6th, uh, for those interested. Um, what was interesting about this case is that it sort of asks whether or not torts other than defamation are nonetheless restricted in the same way defamation is restricted for First Amendment purposes. So the claims being made here were intentional infliction of emotional distress and invasion of privacy by intruding upon seclusion. Let me just start by saying I think these are dubious uh, torts just on their face, uh, but certainly in the context of this case they were a little dubious given the facts. Uh, the folks protesting were on a public street some distance away from the actual, actual funeral. It's not like they busted into somebody's house. Um, but be that as it may, you know, this is a sensitive issue. Military funerals are very emotional events and very solemn events. And so the jury ended up going with uh, the petitioners, or the plaintiffs, rather. Uh, the Court of Appeals went the other way, said it was uh, a First Amendment violation uh, for a variety of reasons that if you want to read about, you can read about it in the, the article Uh, in the review. Uh, What I think is important and interesting about these cases are are two things. One is that uh, a lot of the question about whether or not the First Amendment protected or did not protect uh, this kind of protest activity, and and let's all take for granted that it was deeply, deeply offensive. This protest activity was not simple placard waving, gee, down with the war stuff. This was really designed to be annoying and nasty and obnoxious. Let's accept that as an assumption. Uh, many protesters are not exactly civil in their behavior, and I don't think there's a rule in the First Amendment that says they need to be. Uh, but so the, the, one of the key issues is whether or not the, the, the dead soldier and the family of the dead soldier were public or private figures. So if you're criticizing the family, and some of these protests criticize not only the U.S. and the military in general, but the soldier in particular in sort of nasty ways, uh, and, and one of the arguments made by the plaintiffs is that he's a private figure. You don't get to dump all over a private figure just because you don't like him. 
And the answer to that, the answer given by the Fourth Circuit and the answer uh, given also by defenders of the First Amendment is that, well, it's a public issue. It may not have been a public figure, but he was an individual intimately involved in a highly public issue, the war, uh, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, the, the military's behavior in general, uh, he's not just some John Doe off the street. He's a, a soldier, he, or a former soldier. He was employed by the United States government, used in a very controversial policy of the United States government, and notwithstanding that he may not have been the key decision maker, he's nonetheless related to the issue. I find that persuasive. I find that sympathetic. And one of the big arguments is whether or not it matters that you're a private figure when you are otherwise involved in public activities. Uh, Part of the problem with this, and part of the reason we have this question, of course, is that our definition of a public figure is a little too narrow. Uh, If it were up to me, I would sort of say you're a public figure, at least for limited purposes, when you get involved in public issues, and that would be the end of that. There would be no real separation. But that's what the court's going to have to deal with. I think it's an interesting question. I think the parties on each side sort of make a decent case uh, as to why this, you know, if, if all private figures suddenly become public, that's a little seemingly unfair to people's right to be left to live their lives in peace. Uh, but I, I think the First Amendment advocates have the better of the argument. Uh, the second issue that, w- that I find sort of interesting about this is, is whether or not you can go after these things in, in, in a, in, by, it's by not using time, place, manner restrictions. So uh, in Maryland, I think it was, was it Maryland? Was it the Third Circuit? What, there, there was a state, Maryland, there was a state law that said look, you know, you can't be within 100 yards of the funeral, you can't do this, you can't do that. There were lots of time, place, manner restrictions on all forms of protests, favorable and unfavorable, and those were quite reasonable. And in fact, a bunch of senators have filed an amicus brief talking about how these wonderful time, place, manner restrictions shouldn't be struck down, that they're perfectly reasonable, undercutting the party that they're nominally supporting by pointing out a less restrictive alternative. I sort of think those less restrictive alternatives work a lot better if you tailor them well. And it's hard to see why you get to have the family's sensibilities turn into a lawsuit. I understand they're annoyed, but they have other means of dealing with those sensibilities. The last thing I'd say about this is that military funerals are sort of interesting phenomena. They're not really that private. They're used for public expression by the government, by the families, and by people who want to make all kinds of public points, the points about public honor, the points about sacrifice for one's country. I actually think these points are good points. They're perfectly fine points. I sort of agree with them. But at the point you're making a public statement with the death of every soldier, to say that the other side of that debate doesn't get to say you've wasted their lives unnecessarily or they were baby-killing soldiers a la Vietnam or whatever they want to say, I don't think you can quite go there. You can't let the government and the family co-opt the funeral to make a public expression of their grief and thankfulness and then say, but no one else can intrude upon that public expression. Uh, God forbid our feelings might be hurt. So that's my general feeling on it. It'll be an interesting case. I, don't, I assume it gets affirmed. Uh, but, it's, you know, you never know. <laughs> you never know with these. Uh, I assume it gets affirmed, though, particularly given that there are time, place, manner restrictions that are much less restrictive that could solve most of these problems. The second case, I think, is a little bit harder. Uh, Schwarzenegger versus Entertainment Merchants Association. That's getting argued on November 2nd. Uh, here, the state of California has tried to analogize violent video games, you know, Grand Theft Auto or, you know, Biohazard 20 or whatever, uh, <laughs> I don't play these games. I'm a Super Mario kind of guy. Uh, uh, with, with, uh, with pornography. 
the, you know, they, they've basically said, look, violent video games that's sold, is just like selling porn to kids. Uh, and kids are such desperately sensitive souls that we have to protect them differently. And so it has adopted what you'll think is a very familiar standard. You can't sell violent video games to kids if the game appeals to the deviant or morbid interest in violence among minors. Uh, it violates community standards on what's appropriate for minors. And it lacks significant literary, political, artistic, or scientific value as a whole. These are standard uh, tests applied to pornography and obscenity. Uh, what I would say is two things. One, I always thought these tests were sort of stupid, even in the porn context. Right? I mean, they're just ridiculous. They're about as content-based and mind-control-driven as humanly possible. They never made any sense. Uh, but, you know, nobody seems to be willing to pull them out of the sex context. So perhaps that's a lost cause. But extending them to the violence context. I mean, what if I have a morbid interest in chocolate, for crying out loud? Uh, are you going to ban me from seeing chocolate, too? Uh, you know, it's just at some point, it's a little ridiculous. I don't quite know how anyone decides that an interest in violence or sex for that matter is morbid or deviant other than by saying well I don't like it so the fact that you do must mean it's deviant and morbid uh, and I don't see why the community standards test really has anything to do with anything isn't that the same as saying yeah the state legislature voted for it presumably when they passed the law they were reflecting community standards in some meaningfully representative way uh, so I don't see why it's here it doesn't say anything more than yeah the law passed good for you um, and then the literary, political, scientific, artistic value as a whole, talk about a grotesque content-based criteria. Uh, oh, I don't think it has much literary value. Really? You think it has, the blood splattering from their head was very artistic. Uh, you know, very scientific, too. It was very accurate how the bullet went through the body. And, you know, I just think this is all silliness. Uh, but aside from that, because the court's never going to go there, right? They're never going to follow what I'm saying. Uh, what is interesting about this is whether or not the court's willing to extend porn standards to other disfavored forms of speech. Uh, I thought the article in the review by Nadine Strawson talking about how the court is, is not terribly willing to expand excluded areas of speech, uh, in this case the crush videos, the animal crush videos from last term. Uh, I thought that article has an interesting interaction with this case. Uh, perhaps it will reflect the court's unwillingness to expand traditional exceptions to the First Amendment, so they're not going to push the sex exception into the violence area. Uh, one could hope, I, I hope that that's what they decide. The second issue that's interesting, and I think of more general significance, is the Ninth Circuit held that uh, even uh, analyzing, so analyzing this under strict scrutiny, they, they applied a test that said, you know, you have to show that the speech you're talking about causes harm. The state said, well, it causes psychological harm to the poor kitties who have this deviant or morbid interest, and it changes their brain chemistry. Um, and the Ninth Circuit said, no, that's just correlation, not causation, you lose. Uh, I think that issue is important because uh, judges in general and legislatures in particular have no concept of causation versus correlation, and they, or they're just terrible at it. Some of them have concept of it, but generally they're terrible at it. Legislatures, I, I think, are truly ignorant of it. Um, and at, at the point you're going to have correlation drive public policy, uh, particularly in highly protected areas like the First Amendment. It's one thing in sort of rational basis areas. But in the First Amendment area, I think that's a little dicey. Uh, it also is sort of interesting to say, well, speech causes physical changes which we define as harmful. Well, we should break that out a little bit. So let's see. So the psychological changes is that it causes them to think a different way. It causes them to like violence. Okay, but that's an attitude. That's a thought. I'm not sure that speech changing your thoughts 
is a harm that's cognizable within the First Amendment context. What if the speech may be like communism? That's probably more harmful than my liking violence, but uh, presumably we couldn't regulate it because speech changed, psychologically damaged you by making you think communism was good. Uh, you don't want to go there because uh, then anything is regulable. Uh, likewise, in terms of the physical changes in the brain, well, I assume that the way we remember things, the way we change our attitudes, is that some structure in our brain changes too. That's the nature of memory and the nature of thought and the nature of attitudinal development of the brain. And if the physical changes are intrinsic to having your mind changed or your thoughts adjusted, well, then you can't use those as a hook to say, well, then we're stopping your thoughts from being adjusted because it has a physical manifestation in the real world. Eh, not so hot on that. Anyway, uh, the third case, and I'll try to go quick because I'm probably using up lots of my time, uh, does not deal with the speech clause. It deals with the establishment clause, uh, and that's Arizona Christian School Tuition Organization versus Win. That's getting argued on November 3rd uh, if it makes it that far. So uh, uh, just as a small lead into that, there's, a, there's an argument in supplemental briefing that perhaps the case should be tossed back because there's been a change in the law. I don't think it'll get tossed back, but but it's hard to say. I thought uh, the changes were not meaningful to the, the legal issues here, but at least there's the possibility of that, that the case gets dumped. Um, but assuming it doesn't get dumped, let's talk about it. So what Arizona, what Arizona has done is instead of having a traditional voucher program which says we'll give money to kids to let them pick their schools and pay the tuition of a private school, it's giving tax credits to individuals who donate money to private organizations, which then give scholarships for kids to go to schools. And the real rub here is that those private scholarship organizations can have all kinds of restrictions on the scholarships they give out, including the restriction that says we'll only give it to religious schools or to kids going to religious schools. And so if it were the state who made that restriction, if the state said we'll have a voucher program that only allows you to go to religious schools, I think everyone would agree that's an establishment clause problem. I assume everyone would agree that's an establishment clause problem. But here, the, that, that decision is a function of private choice. The people donating the money can give to any group they want, religious, non-religious, doesn't matter. The private organizations giving out scholarships can give scholarships to any schools they want, religious, non-religious, both. Uh, and so the question is whether you have an intervening private actor makes it not an establishment clause problem. The Ninth Circuit suggested that it looked like it probably did. Uh, it, it was on a facial, weird facial ruling. But... Uh, it all comes down to whether there's enough private choice intervening between the government and the decision to limit scholarships to, private, to, to religious schools. I think it's a close case, actually. Uh, I think it's an extremely close case as to whether these private scholarship organizations are functionally acting as agents of the state. The state is making it bizarrely direct in the way they get their money. So you don't actually have to write a check to the private organization. You can actually do it on your tax form. You can say, I know I was going to pay $100 in taxes, but instead I'm going to say donate my $100 to this private group, uh, and you'll give the money to them instead of giving me my refund or whatever you want. I mean, there, you know, it's a direct one-to-one -one tax credit. The petitioners, despite all the sort of dumping on them that is done from our side of the fence, have a point. They have a point that this is a little painful, that it's not the kids who get to choose anymore. It's now the intermediate organizations that are doing the choosing, and they're doing choosing in a way that you wouldn't let the government do. Uh, and that's a little dicey. Uh, at the end of the day, however, I, I still think it probably survives our current voucher jurisprudence, and perhaps it should survive our, our current voucher jurisprudence, but I think it's a uh, it's a closer case than our side tends to give it credit for. Um, there's a standing issue in there that I won't bother with, whether you can sue for a tax credit as opposed to a, a, a tax uh, deduction. 
I think they'll ultimately have standing. Uh, I, I don't need, I, we won't talk about that more. Three quick pending petitions that deal with First Amendment issues. One is mine, uh, uh, just a fair disclosure, Delano Farms versus California Table Grape Commission. It talks about uh, the government speech doctrine and whether something can be government speech when the, real, the government, the Secretary of Agriculture, actually has no idea what's being said, has no control over what's being said, pays no attention to what's being said, but lets a bunch of farmers get together and say what they want and then pretends like he's giving oversight. Uh, we argued that it wasn't government speech. The Ninth Circuit held it was government speech. We'll see. Probably won't get granted, but you never know. Uh, the second one is a case, Borough of Duria versus Guarnieri, uh, which is the right to petition on matters of private concern. So uh, this was really a retaliation claim, but based on a petitioning on a matter of private concern. Uh, don't know if it has a great chance of getting there, but petitioning on matters of private concern, presumably the petition clause is not limited to that. And then the last one is a case called Weiss v. Casper, which is uh, whether or not you can exclude people from an audience based on their viewpoint. So a bunch of people went to listen to George Bush speak at a generally public event, but they had a bumper sticker on their car that his people didn't like, so they kicked him out. Right? That was it. That's all they did. Uh, and one of the arguments that the court and the, the government has said is that, well, look, George Bush's speeches are government speech, and hence he has the right to decide who listens to him by freedom of association. That's a horrible process. That's a horrible theory. That's awful. Uh, the government speech is awful, but that's a really terrible application of it. Uh, we'll see if that gets granted. Uh, so that's the First Amendment stuff coming up. My time is up. Uh, I'll take questions later. Thank you. For the record, uh, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the uh, Arizona scholarship tuition uh, Axto versus Win is not that close, and it's going to be a nine-nothing reversal, albeit a narrow one. I'll put that out there. So I disagree with Eric. On what basis? We'll get into that later. You can ask if you want. Bated breath. The um, uh, so I'm Tom Goldstein. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. You all have taken a lot of time out of your day. Uh, Cato is an incredible organization. Uh, for being both an advocate for and a forum for discussion of all kinds of critically important issues, including uh, issues of grave importance to the libertarian community. Uh, the Supreme Court obviously has a tremendous influence on each of our lives, and being engaged at the highest levels of these discussions when Cato provides that forum, when it files briefs, is uh, fantastically important to the development of the law, and I appreciate the opportunity, as I, do, I know the other folks on the panel do, to, to be here with you. I'm going to talk about the business docket. As Ilya indicated, you're about to – I'm going to go roughly an hour over my time, and we're going to talk about ERISA. Um, <laughs> You've, done, you've wronged me somehow, and so I'm going to get back at you. No, I'm, I'm going to talk about both in general what I think is going on with the Supreme Court in business cases and also give you a flavor of the business docket at the Supreme Court in the upcoming term. It doesn't have the kind of flavor of the really exciting and sexy um, First Amendment cases, free speech cases, things that really kind of make us uh, debate the nature of ourselves as a country, military funerals and the nature of violence and free speech and things like that. But obviously uh, the business community is a tremendously important institution in America. It affects uh, our lives, our employment, and particularly in a difficult time for the economy, we think a lot about business. It's said that the Supreme Court is kind of in the pocket of the Chamber of Commerce, that it's an extension of it, that John Roberts has a meeting down at the chamber across from the White House every morning at 9, kind of gets his marching orders, and then heads over to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the felt sense of that is really amplified by the Obama administration going after the Supreme Court for the Citizens 
Citizens United campaign finance case, which obviously was talked a lot about uh, earlier today. And the kind of theme is, gosh, the Supreme Court has turned our elections over to the corporate community in a narrow ideological five to four decision. Uh, and you can kind of build on that, as I think the administration is looking to kind of build a populist case against the Roberts Court and say things like, well, 11 out of the 15 cases in which the Chamber of Commerce dis- uh, filed a brief last term, it won, and you know it won almost all of its cases in previous terms. And I do think that there's a sense among the more conservative members of the court that they are concerned about over-regulation, about reading statutes too broadly, about it being too easy to hail people, uh, defendants into court and dragging down the economy as a result, but it's also dramatically overstated to suggest that the Supreme Court is pursuing a corporate agenda. I mean, the, the simplest answer to this in the context of Citizens United is that it applies equally to union speech as it does corporations, which are perfectly free, and believe me, they are exercising that right to be active in the election process, and it's a principal decision, whether you agree with it or not, about the nature of a First Amendment, and that's the kind of thing that you all talked about earlier. Citizens United does illustrate the kind of divisions that exist within the Supreme Court. To some extent, they're accurately portrayed sometimes that they are significantly overstated. So the court last term heard 72 cases and decided them after oral argument plus 11 summary dispositions, so about 80 cases, and one in five cases were divided five to four. Half the cases of the Supreme Court last term were unanimous. So the court is not this bitterly divided institution. Now, within the group of five to four cases, those 16 cases, 11 were five to four on the classic ideological lines. Justice Kennedy and his more conservative colleagues or Justice Kennedy and his more liberal colleagues. And of those 11, uh, eight were decided with Justice Kennedy on the more conservative side, and there were significant business cases there. Citizens United, to the extent it implicates the, the corporate community, but we had the Free Enterprise Fund case, which is a separation of powers case about the nature of uh, how much presidential control there has to be over regulatory bodies, which is a critically important question. There was a big arbitration case on when it is that in a consumer contract or other kinds of contracts, you can, which frequently favor arbitration, you can have class-wide arbitration, which the plaintiff side community much prefers because it's much easier to aggregate claims, but the defense community is very, very concerned about uh, the, you know, the, the prospect of the overhanging threat of billion-dollar awards and what that would mean in the Supreme Court 5-4 to four made it harder to have, uh, to impose class-wide arbitration, a kind of pro-corporate result. Uh, but just in general, I think that the, the claim that the outcomes last term were pro-corporate is again overstated, so that there are a bunch of business cases that the Chamber of Commerce didn't file in and that the uh, pro-corporate side lost. The Supreme Court was asked to limit the antitrust laws and refused last term. It was asked to limit the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act last term, and it refused. The Free Enterprise Fund case, which you know had set up as a really exciting kind of law school exam about presidential power, ended up being kind of a nothing burger. It said that, okay, you have to have direct presidential control over the firing of these officials in the organization that uh, issues the regulations to implement Sarbanes-Oxley, which is, of course, an extremely important corporate regulation. But when it found the constitutional violation, it didn't strike down the regulatory scheme. It just struck down the the separation that limited the president's control. And so it was a very modest ruling. When the court is more aggressive, say Citizens United, which overruled, as you all heard discussed, a prior decision called Austin, when it has more aggressively moved in, say, areas like abortion and race, it's been when Justice Kennedy has been on board and very 
uh, you know, seemingly wanting to move the law, but it has acted quite modestly in other areas. So people talk about the revolution in the guns case, right? Well, the Supreme Court has done an incredibly important thing in recognizing a Second Amendment right to bear arms that's unconnected to military service and saying that it applies to state regulation, but it hasn't actually done anything yet other than kind of write constitutional doctrine. It hasn't, uh, ha it hasn't gone much further, taken the more aggressive step in announcing how broad that right is going to be. Friends of Cato are deeply involved in that critically important issue, but it will be interesting to see when it is the Supreme Court turns a corner and actually pushes to a result that has kind of a ma meaningful social impact beyond the statement about gun rights and, and when it doesn't. Uh, but in the business cases, I don't think it's fair to say it has been tr uh, tremendously aggressive. I, I do want to flag for you what I think the six uh, biggest business cases are, and they are not big cases, but they are meaningful and they are important and they will say something about the Supreme Court and they will have impact on the business community. One involves uh, drug reporting. So a drug company has a product and this was the product where you would take the Q-tip and you would stick it in your nose and it would stop you from getting a cold. Uh, they got a series of reports, a Zycam or something like that, they got a series of reports that said that um, it was causing some people to lose their sense of smell. Uh, my reaction was, well, that stinks. The, um, but the, uh, uh, I'll be here all week. The, um, uh, but the question is, you know, is the drug company required to report to the market those adverse events before they are regarded, what would be regarded as medically, scientifically, statistically significant, I should say. Um, and because there is a risk that reporting them too early will cause the market to overreact. On the other hand, investors will say, well, we want access to all information. So that will be an important case. And it's, it's a drug case right now, but it will tell us about the nature of disclosures that are required uh, by businesses that get bad information. You know, a car company dealing with rollovers, Toyota dealing with acceleration. All of those issues are implicated by this case. Second, another arbitration case. I mentioned the case last term that dealt with the question of uh, what your arbitration agreement has to say in order to trigger class-wide arbitration. And the Supreme Court said it's got to be clear. There's got to be an affirmative statement that says you will have class-wide arbitration. Now the Supreme Court has, in effect, the other side of the coin, and that is can a state apply a law that says if you don't have class-wide arbitration, you can't have arbitration at all. So this will shock you. The state of California has decided it is, you know, has the by far the greatest amount of consumer protection regulation in the universe, uh, you know, or in a lot of places. There may be other planets, it's true. The, uh, but the, uh, the state of California has, a, has interpreted its consumer protection laws to say, you know, look, this is a case involving AT&T mobility. So you sign up for a cell phone or contract. You may have a very consumer-oriented uh, agreement, but it's going to say, we're gonna you got a problem, we're going to arbitrate rather than go to court. But AT&T says, if you have a problem with us, we're going to arbitrate one against the other. But what if that arbitration agreement has the same problem for lots and lots of people? California says all those people need to be able to get together and pursue their claims as a unit because what if the claim's only worth $10 or something like that? The right to have a class action in court extends to arbitration. And the question before the Supreme Court is, can a state do that? Or instead, does the Far Federal Arbitration Act control and its ruling from last term control and class-wide arbitration is permitted only when it very clearly says there will be class-wide arbitration? The third case is a kind of uh, fair competition antitrust case masquerading as a copyright case. Uh, and so this involves Omega watches. 
full disclosure, I filed a brief for the American Bar Association in this case. Um, but here's how it plays out. Omega, which is best known for the fact that James Bond uses its watches. Uh, James Bond has an Omega watch, and what he does, what you don't realize, is he goes around and tells everybody, I have the most amazing Omega watch. What's so amazing about it, 007? It, he says, if you turn it over, it has this really cool symbol of a globe on the back. That conversation never happens. Nobody buys a watch because of the symbol of whatever on the back. We tend not to look at the back of the watch, actually. Uh, The goal generally is to look at the front, which is where the time is at. But Omega has a strategy that says, I'm going to copyright my watch. It's really interesting. It's a physical good, but they put a symbol on the back that's copyrighted. And the reason that they do that, they have very good corporate lawyers, which is obviously the most important thing in the universe. But their very good corporate lawyers told them, if you copyright it, then you can sell it in Europe at a lower price and forbid its importation in the United States because a copyright owner has the right to control domestic importation. Uh, And so you can set a price in the United States of your watch of $1,500 and a price in England of $1,000, and you can stop arbitrage. Well, Costco got their hands on a bunch of Omega watches in Europe at $1,000 and is trying to sell them at Costco for $1,100. I didn't know there was anything that cost more than $11 at Costco, (laughs) but you can actually buy them in bulk. You get big boxes of them, uh, but, but whatever. Costco's got their hands on a bunch of cheap Omega watches, and you should get down there right away. Uh, But Omega doesn't like that. And so the question is, does this, uh, when you resell it in Europe or somewhere else, does your market control continue? Or is the fact that you've sold it mean it's out of your hands, it was a legitimate sale, and we have a free market, and uh, you you don't get to segment markets through the copyright law. So that's an interesting one. There is a uh, car accident case. This is a preemption case. Preemption is the doctrine that federal law is supreme over state law. The Supreme Court gets a bunch of these cases. Uh, And the question is, Mazda went through a regulatory process about its seat belts, and it decided on the basis of the regulatory process that it was, in a particular seat, in a particular minivan, going to have a lap belt rather than a shoulder belt. They get sued after a terrible accident by somebody who says that was irresponsible. You should have, in the ordinary duty of care, put a shoulder belt, and I would not have been injured in the fashion that I was. The question is, does the process that Mazda went through in deciding to have shoulder belts versus lap belts preempt and you know set a, effectively a federal standard that overrides uh, what in, in the application of state common law would be a more rigorous state law standard. The Supreme Court in different contexts and different statutes, medical devices, drugs, boat propellers, it is depended very much on the individual regime. But this will be another in a body of cases that tells us how much regulatory review is something that businesses can rely on or instead sets a floor and states can set a you know a higher standard by which they rather than a ceiling for what's required and the states can set a higher standard that the companies must comply with the fifth case that I will mention is called the cat's paw theory case it's Staub versus Proctor Hospital why is it called cat's paw because lawyers like to come up with cool-sounding names for doctrines, I suppose. Uh, the cat's paw doctrine is uh, comes from a fable, and the fable has a monkey manipulating a cat, sticking the cat's paw into a flame. That will not have a lot to do with this case. Um, the cat's paw, the, the relationship is the following and difficult... Stevens was last year, Tom. I see. No, thank you. This is not an animal abuse case. Um, the question is... Uh, a recurring one in a corporate structure. So you are an employee. 
you have a supervisor. Your supervisor is biased. She doesn't like men. He doesn't like women. He doesn't like African Americans. She doesn't like Jews. I don't know what it is, but for some reason, you've made somebody very upset. Uh, They are biased in violation of the federal anti-discrimination laws, and they are out to get you. Assume that premise. So they kind of set you up, but corporations have a lot of different policies that are kind of sometimes loosely enforced, sometimes rigorously enforced. They report you to the corporation's human resources department. The HR department does its own investigation and determines that your supervisor is right. You did actually break the rules. Right? They, they found a technical violation, and they decide to dismiss you. The question is, given that the part of the company that actually dismissed you had no bias whatsoever, is the company liable for the supervisor's discriminatory motive? So the, the monkey here is the supervisor. The cat is the HR department. The HR department effectively is being... Uh, manipulated into firing you. And the question is, whose intent describes the corporation's intent? The Court of Appeals here said that there had to be singular control of the supervisor. The position of the United States and other circuits has been that to the extent it had a material effect on the outcome, the company is responsible for the intent of its supervisor. So it presents an interesting dilemma about corporate structure, corporations wanting to set up HR departments that protect them from liability, Uh, At the same time, we want to have a fair uh, and aggressive application of the federal civil rights laws. The last case that I'll mention is the Arizona immigration case. It's not that Arizona immigration case. It's the other Arizona immigration case. Obviously, there's been a lot of attention to the law that was recently passed and defended by uh, Governor Brewer and that was enjoined by a federal district court in Arizona. Uh, But there is a predecessor case that had made its way up that was brought by the Chamber of Commerce along with strange bedfellows of labor folks and the ACLU. Uh, The state of Arizona had required businesses to use a federal e-verify system for checking their Uh, would-be employees' compliance with federal immigration law and had also said that if employers violated federal immigration law, they would have their business licenses taken away. This is, again, a preemption question. It is, does Congress and do the federal immigration laws occupy the field of immigration? And states can't piggyback on that and add their own sanctions because they would thereby be changing the federal priority of how it wants to enforce the immigration law and allocate its resources. Arizona kind of throws up its hands and says, you know, what do you want from me? You've got these supposed immigration laws, but you're not enforcing the things. Uh, I'm just here to help. It's your law. You made the thing. I'm just helping you enforce it. It presents a very interesting dilemma about the the balance between state and federal power. It's important on its own terms. But this case, it's fair to say, the Chamber of Commerce case, will almost certainly determine the constitutionality of the follow-on case that has uh, received so much attention in Arizona more recently. So that's uh, a little bit of my sense of the broader business docket as well as the upcoming cases, and thanks very much. I'll just note Tom mentioned the Chamber of Commerce being successful 11 and 15. If, if that means that the court is pro-business, then the court apparently is also pro-libertarian because of the 25 or 27 merits case I've been involved with since I've been at, at Cato's amicus briefs. So I think I've only been on the losing side maybe three times. So at least that's a good – I never thought of the court as being libertarian, but uh, – That just means is. the court is wise. Well, uh, thank you very much for inviting me. And uh, now that I find out I'm the only non-practitioner to to be speaking, I'm even more honored uh, 
I guess it would be just a little. Non JD. Uh, I guess it would be just a little more impressive if this were a brain surgery uh, <laughs> conference, but but still, I appreciate it. Um, and uh, I, I'm going to talk about a couple of cases that uh, raise familiar issues for the court, and then talk a little bit about the um, ever-changing Roberts Court that celebrates its uh, fifth birthday this year, and uh, and hope that that brings us into. Um, question and answer and discussion period where we can talk about the court a little bit more. Uh, One of the cases I'm going to talk about is Connick v. Thompson. It involves, uh, once again, charges of prosecutorial misconduct. Uh, This is a case that has all the drama of a TV movie, uh, including, which might be where it's headed, including a deathbed confession of an assistant district attorney. Uh, Unfortunately, the case is that the court wants to decide is about municipal liability, which I don't think looks nearly as good on a movie marquee. But uh, John Thompson was convicted of attempted armed robbery in New Orleans in 1985, shortly before he was to stand trial in the unrelated case of the killing the son of a well-known hotel owner. Prosecutors used his conviction in that robbery case uh, to help secure the death penalty against him in the murder case because they figured that once he had been convicted in the carjacking uh, case, he would be less likely to take the stand, uh, declare his innocence when they could bring that case, uh, that conviction up against him. He spent 18 years in prison, uh, came within weeks of his execution uh, as his case worked up and down the legal system, and then a pair of Philadelphia lawyers who had taken his appeal pro bono discovered evidence that prosecutors had withheld. Uh, In 1999, an investigator found a crime lab report that prosecutors had not turned over. The long and short of it is that a blood sample in the carjacking case did not match either the victim or Thompson, meaning someone else had committed the crime. And uh, the former district attorney, Harry Connick, acknowledged that, that his prosecutors had withheld that uh, evidence and that the armed robbery conviction should be overturned. It was, but then a court also said that his murder conviction, uh, he had been unconstitutionally deprived of his right to testify during the murder trial. That led to a new trial in which he was acquitted. After that, he sued the district attorney's office, and a jury awarded him $14 million. The current district attorney inherited the debt. He said that the judgment is roughly equal to his annual uh, annual budget and would have devastating financial consequences. Now, in the past, the court has said trial prosecutors are entitled to absolute immunity for their work in the courtroom. And uh, in Vandekamp, uh, a couple of years ago, they also said that uh, they were shielded from any actions that involved prosecutions and trials. But last year, the court took a case from Iowa that presented the question of whether prosecutors who manufactured and then used evidence at trials should be immune for that. Uh, The court never decided the case because it settled uh, after they had heard arguments. So this raises the question of liability for a municipal officer, such as the district attorney, for the failure to train his subordinates in proper procedure, in this case, turning over evidence covered by the court's decision in Brady v. Maryland. Now, the court has decided that that municipalities can be sued, but they make it very difficult to do that. And this case asks whether a single incident uh, like this one should mean that the uh, 
district attorneys should, can be held liable. Uh, the district attorney's office argues it had no policy of keeping Brady material from defendants. Uh, one-time violation does not amount to deliberate indifference, and that in addition, you know, he employs lawyers who should know how to do this, and that uh, it is up to them. Thompson's lawyers say, for one thing, there's been more than one episode of this uh, in Connick's office. He's now out of office, and he is the father of the singer. Um, and uh, they argue that uh, he both didn't train his uh, subordinates and that he didn't really understand the requirements of Brady himself. Uh, Thompson has an interesting group of supporters. Uh, Cato is one, so I'm sure I'll be corrected if I uh, tell you wrongly that Cato's argument is that uh, the court was wrong in its initial decision about municipalities and that there's no reason why municipal governments should have more protection for the actions of its agents than businesses do. And there's also an odd political trio of Paul Clement, Pam Carlin, and Kelly Shackelford who have filed a brief uh, on behalf of uh, Thompson. They represent federal civil rights officers and prosecutors who say that Brady requires constant training. Uh, and that failure to provide it can constitute a violation. And they reference uh, the Justice Department's recent embarrassments in the Ted Stevens case uh, as uh, an acknowledgement of what prosecutors need to do all the time. There's another case that may sound like something the court has already decided, uh, and that's Skinner versus Switzer. It concerns a a Texas death row inmate, Henry Hank Skinner, who came within hours of execution last spring before the court granted a stay and accepted his case. Now, Skinner is supported by a large group of professors and death penalty opponents and others who raise questions about his conviction, and they say, uh, and he maintains he is innocent. Now, he says he may have been present when his girlfriend and her two mentally retarded adult sons were bludgeoned and stabbed on New Year's Eve in 1993. But he says he was too zonked out on vodka and cocaine to have possibly committed these acts. Uh, Blood tests at the time show he had a near lethal dose of those drugs uh, in his bloodstream. But police followed a bloody path uh, to the home of his former girlfriend, and they found him in the closet with blood on his clothes and a gash in his hand. The blood on his clothes matched his victims. But he said that wasn't surprising because he acknowledges that he was there. Uh, His lawyers point to a lecherous uncle who is now dead who had harassed the victim earlier in the evening. Since his conviction, he has sought to have other evidence in the case, uh, a knife, material from the victim's body, hair, tested uh, for DNA. The state of Texas has refused, and courts have declined to order the tests. Now, why this might sound familiar is that the court in June uh, 2009 ruled in a case from Alaska that defendants did not have a constitutional right under habeas review to DNA testing. Skinner tries to get around that by saying something that he said was unresolved in that, and that's whether a prisoner may pursue that claim under civil rights law. On a practical level, this case underscores the gamesmanship that often occurs in these cases. Skinner's lawyers at the time were reluctant to push for more DNA testing that might provide evidence against him, Uh, prosecutors, now that they have the conviction, uh, have been selective in which material they want tested. 
Skinner's lawyers say that the state's interest should be in making sure they've convicted the right man, not whether their conviction of Skinner can be upheld. And uh, it raises a tough question for the court about uh, DNA testing, one that as is evolving, becoming more certain. Um, in the Alaska case, uh, the court was split five to four. Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority. But there was even more split than that. Alito and Kennedy uh, said that a prisoner should not be able to bring a claim for DNA testing if he'd passed up the chance at trial. Uh, others said that the government's interest should be in making sure that the right person is convicted, and so what does it matter when these tests are done? Uh, but former Justice Souter was with those dissenters, although he uh, withheld uh, his support from the others that there was a constitutional right to the testing. He said only that Alaska's reasoning for not providing the test was inadequate. And so this will be a, uh, a good case about when a state's law, Texas has a law that allows this kind of DNA testing, when it is adequate too. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the court and uh, just mo mostly to open it up for uh, discussion and questions. And I wanted to look at our, uh, our four new members in the last five years and what we learned about them, uh, well, mostly last year because reporters don't think much beyond last year and the year ahead. So uh, one thing we saw, Roberts, thanks to Tom Scotus block, is that he was in the majority more than anyone else uh, last time, even Justice Kennedy. Uh, he was willing to join with the uh, liberals on a couple of issues, which is something that he hasn't really done on important cases. One was on the issue of life without parole for uh, juveniles. He said that uh, there are times that that could be unconstitutional, although he disagreed with them that it was always unconstitutional. And... Uh, he uh, agreed with them on the federal power to civilly contain sex offenders after their sentences are up. Uh, the person who joined the court not long after him, Justice Alito, I think we found to be uh, in a much more confident mood uh, last term. He uh, was more willing, I think, than in the past to be out on his own. He was often the uh, only uh, dissenting vote in a decision. He wrote uh, a couple of very strong dissents, and he wrote more five to four decisions uh, last year than he has in the past, including McDonald, the, uh, the gun case. Uh, he also wrote a very forceful dissent, I thought, in the Christian Legal Society, in which he spoke for those members of the court. Uh, we got our first taste of Justice Sotomayor. We found that she is not shy. Uh, we found that she jumps in and is a quick questioner and I think showed uh, her real experience on the bench. Uh, she seems to be um, well-liked by the other justices uh, and uh, I thought she found her voice uh, more in dissent than in the uh, fairly, as you might expect, dull majority opinions that she was given to write, particularly her dissent in the Miranda ruling, I thought uh, showed someone who was very, had been very involved as a judge in uh, all levels of the court in a way that some of the other justices are not. Um, it's going to take us a little while to find out uh, who exactly Justice 
uh, Kagan is going to be since she's recused in half of the cases that the court uh, has so far scheduled. Um, it'll be very interesting, I think, to, to find out exactly what her position is on things. Uh, you know, everything that we have found, she was either serving a president uh, one way or she was representing the will of Congress and the government another way. And so we don't quite know where she is. And it will be interesting uh, to see her on First Amendment cases, which she clearly has a, a strong interest in. But I, I have to say, and someone can correct me if they know better, I can't quite tell exactly where she comes from on the First Amendment. Uh, and uh, whether her support of, uh, say, the Mojave Cross uh, and religious symbols on public grounds is something that is uh, deeply held or was lawyering in that case. And, uh, you know, we'll also uh, see a court very un unfamiliar without its leader on the left, um, Justice Stevens. I think uh, that he leaves behind some precarious five to four decisions, uh, and it's going to be interesting to see whether Justice Kagan is going to be in his camp on those or not. Thank you. Thank you for all of that. Um, I'm going to exercise my moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, this summer, uh, at least, uh, you know, I might be exaggerating, but certainly those of us who follow the court and courts uh, for a living, in the span of about uh, a week or ten days, we had three of the most significant, I thought, uh, district court opinions uh, in, in such a period, uh, at least that, that, that I can recall such a confluence, and those, of course, being the uh, judge in Virginia dismissing, uh, denying the government's motion to dismiss uh, in Virginia's Obamacare challenge, uh, the Arizona judge letting most of SB 1070 go into effect, but in joining four uh, sections, including the most controversial ones, and uh, Judge Vaughn Walker in San Francisco uh, finding a constitutional right uh, to gay marriage under the Equal Protection and Due Process Clauses. Those, of course, are going to be all going through uh, the system, uh, uh, and they are uh, as we speak. So my question to the panelists to, to open this up, uh, maybe one of these issues will touch the court this term, probably not, probably that's for next term. But how will uh, these cases or the issues, you know, depending on how they, are, they, they stack up procedurally, uh, how will that affect uh, the court's jurisprudence, uh, you know, as they, you know, they, they read the papers, they know this is coming, um, and with a, uh, a view to the uh, electoral uh, or popular reactions uh, to these opinions? I'll, uh, I'll leave it open uh, like that to the extent that any of you want to discuss that. I'll, I'll take a shot. I mean, I think <clears throat> obviously the court's going to see Obamacare coming down the pike. I suspect they will be a little more attentive to not having big, flowery, overbroad dicta in whatever they decide this year, knowing that that's going to come to them later. Uh, that said, <laughs> uh, I think there's a long road to hoe on Obamacare. Uh, and that, if it's struck down, it will need to make new law to do it. Uh, quite frankly, if it's held up, it may need to expand otherwise existing broad law to do it. But I think if, to the extent that it has any impact on the court this term, it will just uh, make them be cautious of dicta. Prop 8, I can't imagine, has any impact. Um, I don't see that one 
faring well at the Supreme Court uh, for advocates of new rights. Um, and Arizona, you know, uh, I, obviously when they take on the Candelaria case, they're going to have this in mind. Uh, and so, yes, it's going to influence what they say in Candelaria, but I think Candelaria is a little different in that it Candel deal Candelaria being the, the immigration. I'm sorry, the Chamber of Commerce, the Immigration employ employ Employing Illegal Immigrants case. Uh, I think that case is a little different because it deals with an express exception to federal preemption. And, and so I think that they can decide that case narrowly without having to make big flowery statements about the immigration power in general. I don't think that the Obamacare and immigration cases, though they're profoundly important to us as a nation and to the rights of the states, will cause the Supreme Court to struggle unduly. I think they're on, they're the courts on pretty firm footing, whatever it decides. I think that uh, the health care legislation will be upheld and that the immigration law will mostly be struck down. Lots of people disagree with me. Uh, I do agree that those cases will come up. You know, Prop 8 is another kettle of fish entirely. The court will struggle uh, tremendously with its institutional role, which why I tend to agree with Eric that that case, that the plaintiffs are in trouble as that case gets towards the Supreme Court. It's also possible that it won't get to the Supreme Court uh, because it will be unbanked or they'll be or super unbanked or super-duper unbank. No, the Ninth Circuit has layers of unbank review, uh, or that there'll be a new proposition in California that will moot the case out, or that the plaintiffs will be deemed not to have standing. Uh, but one thing you will see, I think, is the plaintiffs themselves narrowing their case, their case dramatically to the claim that either that there are unique features of California law, the fact that it has domestic partnerships anyway, and so it's irrational to have the label marriage attached to one rather than the other, uh, or that California gave the right and took it away. Uh, but um, that case, which I think is a is still a term away, given the stay situation in the Ninth Circuit, that there's no rush to take it up to the U.S. Supreme Court, will be, you know, the case of the century, perhaps. Bob, anything to add? Well, I, I uh, am, should not and am not in the business of predicting the court, but I would say that I think what we see is that this is a very um, – aggressive and very confident court. Uh, I think back to the stays uh, that the court uh, uh, entered in last term, uh, the way it jumped into the Arizona campaign, uh, public campaign finance law uh, in the middle of an election, the way it got involved in the, uh, you know, what could be seen as sort of an judicial interconference decision to um, broadcast the Prop 8 trial just to other courthouses. Uh, you know, the court, I think, uh, acts on its own, and while I'm sure it is aware of uh, the impact that it has outside, I think that this is a court that feels very strongly uh, that it knows what it's doing and is not shy about getting involved when it wants to. You know, I was debating Obamacare uh, against Mark Tushnet on, on Tuesday, and, and he uh, said, uh, kind of uh, uh, glibly concluded with, uh, well, what's going to happen is uh, someday in late June 2012, Justice Kennedy will provide the deciding vote to strike down Obamacare, find a right to gay marriage, and then promptly resign. Uh, to which, when I relayed this to David Bowes, Cato's executive vice president, he said, well, of course, that makes perfect sense, because then he will be eligible and win uh, Cato's uh, biannual Friedman Prize for advancing liberty. So uh, you heard it here first. Uh, any questions from the audience? Right here. 
Yeah, I was going to say, um, Justice Stevens was one of the, this is for Mr. Goldstein particularly, um, Justice Stevens was one of the biggest opponents of federal preemption, and now that Kagan is replacing him, I wanted to have you speak directly to issues of preemption and how, you know, now that they only need four votes, how that's going to factor in. And just given that, you know, federal preemption opponents lost one of their biggest, I guess, advocates. Sure. Um, that's really true. I think preemption is a you, – you struggle to find lots of areas where replacing a more liberal Justice Stevens with a more liberal Justice Kagan will make a big difference, and you'd settle quickly on preemption, maybe executive power to some extent. She's never really written in the field, and she's never – you know, this isn't something that she's done a lot of. Note that preemption advocates, in one sense, picked up a big ally in the past couple of terms in Justice Thomas, who announced that he would never again vote to find something impliedly preempted. He said, if you're going to trump what the states are doing, write it down, and then we'll talk, but I'm not going to infer uh, that you intended to preempt things. So I, I actually think that recent decisions uh, are headed in, the, in, in a very uh, mixed direction uh, but tend to favor states' rights. I think that even with Justice Stevens' departure, you're likely to find less aggressive applications of preemption, and that the core of that will be the points that have been made about the justices, but also the administration. The Bush administration, while it had a kind of deregulatory approach, nonetheless would file briefs in the Supreme Court all the time saying federal law controls. Uh, and I think the Obama administration is likely to be more friendly towards state tort suits, not that they don't think that there should be more regulation. They are fans of regulation. Uh, but that they want two layers of regulation in effect, and that is what the expert agencies are doing and what state law might require. So I think in general, if I were a business, even with the Stevens departure, I would not be that excited about taking preemption claims to the Supreme Court. So, for example, I think Mazda will lose the lap belt, shelter belt case. I agree. Questions for you. I wonder if you, you didn't. I don't think you gave us your assessment of how you think the AT and T case uh, is going to come out. You described the issues, uh, but some of us who are inclined towards freedom of contract as well as arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act um, see that case as pretty important. And uh, just wonder how you think how how you think the justices line up on that case. Sure, and to rehearse the bidding, this is the case where the court on the ideological lines last term had said, if you're going to have class-wide arbitration, you've got to write it really clearly into the contract. California has a general consumer protection law that's been interpreted to say, if you've got one of those contracts and it says there won't be class-wide arbitration, you're not going to have arbitration at all. And while the Federal Arbitration Act, which is the controlling federal statute here, has a, a, a provision that says you can apply general principles of contract, this strikes me as not that general a principle of contract, but a very specific arbitration rule. To say that it's unconscionable, like I just feel it's immoral to have a contract that doesn't allow class-wide arbitration. Like, you know, history will books will be written about the outrage of this. Strikes me as a little over the top. Uh, you know, it's allowed in 49 other states or so. I mean, lots of the country has, the, the, you know, the nation has still soldiered on in the face of such agreements. Uh, and I think the Supreme Court, which is favors arbitration and believes that contract, you know, while it's not always fair, is still kind of the best system we have, is likely to say that this California law is preempted by the Federal Arbitration Act and that whether we're going to have class-wide arbitration and whether we're going to have arbitration in general is going to be written on the piece of paper. That's what I think. I just want to add to that. I think it's going to be 5-4, though, um, just because last term's case on class-wide arbitration was 5-3 with Sotomayor sitting out, uh, yet I would think that that's a pretty clean case, too. So I think you'll have the same five saying 
sorry, you can't jam it down people's throats. But I think the other four will say, oh, but it, the poor consumers, the children, right? Uh, down here for Ilya Soman. Uh, Ilya Soman, this is actually a question about the video games case for Eric. Uh, I was wondering how the argument for censoring these sorts of games when they're sold to children would uh, differentiate the games from uh, cases where there's historical documentaries or educational materials which also portray graphic violence. For instance, when I was little, I watched very graphic documentaries about the Holocaust, which had far worse stuff than probably anything on these video games. Presumably the answer is that one is of greater public importance or educational value or whatnot than the other, but if so, couldn't the video game manufacturers simply get around this by having their violent games set in historical settings and the like, which is actually something they already do with having military-based games set in World War II or in other historical periods or including other educational materials. For instance, maybe Grand Theft Auto can have something in there about the uh, educational aspects of the criminal justice system or about traffic safety or whatnot uh, and so forth. Uh, you know, that's sort of a, a lob, right? I mean, the answer is, <clears throat> of course they could try to get around it by, there's, there's no meaningful way to distinguish the educational value of a documentary that shows what it's like to have people blown up in World War One or World War II uh, versus a game that plays like you're a soldier in World War One and World War II. Um, and, and, uh, and and that's that's my objection to this whole notion of uh, assessing the literary or historical or scientific value of uh, anything of this sort, including sex videos. Right? Uh, do I? It'd be fascinating to know what sex they were having back in you know 1901, I suppose. <laughs> Just as a historical matter, it's certainly part of history, uh, and so it has some value, presumably. But but. Uh, it just it, it proves the silliness of it. And from my perspective, it's impossible to see what video game would actually satisfy all of California's criteria to actually ban it. Because I can't conceive of a video game that doesn't have some significant value in one of those areas. It's just uh, I find it hard to imagine that a clever lawyer couldn't do that. Swing by the house. I'll show you some stuff. <laughs> uh, um, I, I will say... That Eric, I was wondering, Eric, I was wondering why you think the court took the case. Well, that's the, that's the puzzle I was going to ask, too. And so last year we had the Stevens case, 8 to 1. We're not going to have a special rule about violent, you know, the dogfighting videos and, and animal cruelty. And neither this nor the Snyder case, the funeral protest case, involve any circuit conflict. And it seems like the, the side that's going to win won below. So it is a little bit of a puzzle. Uh, I would say on the video game case, the court, I mean, I'm speculating. Right? I don't know why the court took it. But perhaps the answer is, you know, when a state law gets struck down, you have some obligation to at least take a look at it. I mean, those are one of the classic exceptions to the split case where you're striking down a fairly important state law. Uh, so if it were my guess, uh, uh, that's enough of a reason in and of itself, even if you're planning on coming. Now, now what I want to know, though, is are any of these games, do they actually have Schwarzenegger in them featured as a character? I All right. Uh, Tim Sandifer, and then we're going to go up to the back. Tim Sander for Pacific Legal Foundation. Uh, two, two brief questions. First, uh, to Eric Jaffe, do you think that the First Amendment protects a person's right to smash a politician's face with a pie? And the second question is, what are your thoughts on Duke versus Walmart uh, class action? Do you think that will be granted cert? Uh, the first, the answer is depending on the politician. <laughs> uh, depending on the flavor. 
Are certain, pie. are certain pies expressive and others yes, not? Yes, certain pies are more expressive than others. Certainly chocolate ones, which appeal to a deviant interest in chocolate, <laughs> would be very expressive, in my opinion. But no, of course not. But that, of course, is actual conduct, whereas I think watching a video game is somewhat different than conduct. Um, at least it needs to be different by definition, if not in principle. Uh, and as to the Walmart case, I have no idea whether it will be granted. I think the answer to that question is yes. So Dukes against Walmart is the biggest class action ever. Uh, all of the women supervisors at Walmart are a member of a class that provoked a big en banc proceeding and a big dissent. And there are a variety of uncertainties and arguable conflicts in class action law. But it's a humongous case, and it will say a lot about how it is that we regulate large workforces that span hundreds of stores with thousands of supervisors around the country uh, and it's an aggressive application of the class action model. And whatever will happen in the Supreme Court, I think it's one of these cases where it's at the, it's so important the 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 possibility. You the, this was a class action that was approved by the Ambach Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. It went back for trial, and uh, before that risk of kind of a settlement extortion is imposed on Walmart, I think the Supreme Court will step in because it it it's a very very unusual and sweeping class action. Second row in the back. Taylor, and my uh, question is a First Amendment question. It's commercial uh, free speech. I think Justice Thomas suggested in a concurrence uh, this year that he was prepared to revisit the entire issue of Zouderer and Central Hudson. Um, do those of you who litigate the free speech cases think that that is likely in the near future, and if so, what's the vehicle? Do I think... That's revisiting Central Hudson is likely? That, that revisiting the whole commercial free speech. And we, we discussed earlier today the First Amendment, you know, being absolute terms, you know, doesn't say anything that's the commercial free that, that somehow commercial free speech will be more limited than any other speech. And I think Justice Thomas suggested that he's uh, willing to look at that. Uh, I would find it, uh, as sympathetic as I might be to Justice Thomas's view on this, I would find it difficult to see a majority for breaking that compromise on letting commercial speech in but not uh, protecting it to quite the same degree as other forms of speech. While that may not be purely logical from the text of the First Amendment, it's, it's somewhat of a compromise. Uh, if you recall an old article by Vince Blasi from Columbia, he talked about sort of trivializing the First Amendment by letting in sort of other things that you don't want to protect as much, and this was a compromise to stop us from watering down political speech protections. Uh, I think that the, the lesser protection given to commercial speech, given its inter, interrelationship with commercial transactions, there again the pie-throwing example, it's hard to separate the speech from the conduct in those situations. I think that compromise will last and not get dumped. One last very short question. So those of you who don't have a short question, can put your hands down. Okay, Steve Shore. that you've not addressed in the terms of the video games or depictions of certain violence or pornography is that there are videos that actually film illegal acts being committed and there are others that use computer-generated images that where no crime is committed in the making of the video or um, work. Would this have any relevance in how the court decides? Um. Yes, certainly. Uh, I mean, Nadine Strassen's article in the review has a good comment on this. Uh, it strikes me that to the extent that no actual criminals were harmed in the making of the video about Grand Theft Auto, uh, that you can't 
pull in the Ferber doctrine. You can't pull in that. So uh, the impact I think it will have is that that's just off the table. It's not a, a credible argument anymore, particularly after the crush video cases and the narrowing of Ferber and all of that stuff. The more interesting question is, is, is violence like sex, especially when you apply it to kids who are sensitive souls? With that, let's thank our panel. And we'll move right into our uh, B. Kenneth Simon lecture with Professor Bill Van Alstyne of William & Mary. I should add on a personal note, I can't resist, that when I was a uh, college student looking at different law schools, I, I went down to Duke where Professor... Feel free to move around while I'm, while I'm saying this is kind of a filler while people get set. Uh, uh, I went down to Duke, and uh, one of the classes that I saw was... Uh, Professor Van Alstyne's constitutional law class. And I mean, it was a tour de force. He was performing out there. I, was, I'm sure it was on the First Amendment. Uh, and while I did not end up going to Duke, I did end up going to law school after deferring for uh, a little bit. So uh, I think uh, to, to his credit or discredit, he is somewhat responsible for my uh, being where I am today.